Hallelujah. How, praise God. What a wonderful time to celebrate Easter Sunday. I'm just so excited. It's a favorite time of year uh, to come together and celebrate Jesus, uh, who is indeed the reason we are here and the reason we have life. Um, if you're new of us today, my name is Pete. Uh, I am the pastor here and wonderful to be able to preach uh, to you this morning from this incredibly powerful passage from 1 Corinthians. Uh, before we jump in, uh, let's pray together. Uh, gracious God, we thank you that Christ has risen. He is risen indeed. And we have become, because of him, a resurrection people filled with power, with a gift of eternal life to enjoy you forever and ever. As we come to this passage, Father, may we be uh, incredibly uh, in awe of who Jesus is, what he has become, and who, through him, you have promised that we also will be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Death is natural. Just an everyday part of life. Nothing to fear. Nothing to worry about. Just something to accept. At least that is the message of The Lion King. <laughs> Lion King, new movies coming out this year, so I thought it was fitting to start with. Mufasa and the young Simba. You remember the quote from Mufasa. Uh, when we die, our bodies become the grass, and the antelope eat the grass, and so we are all connected into the great circle of life, and then Elton John comes from nowhere, and the, the music rises, and it's all very wonderful. The Lion King actually sums up the modern-day uh, belief about death. A death is natural. It's an everyday part of life, not something to be concerned about, simply something to accept. But if that's true, why is it that despite our best efforts, we are still so very afraid of death? If death is so natural, so normal, nothing to be worried about, then why is it not welcome? I think for a few reasons. First, because death means the end of love. It's the untimely tearing away of a human being from us. It's the end of all possibility of relationship. And at heart, we are relational beings. And so to watch a loved one torn away, well, it's nothing less than a broken heart. Second, uh, death means the beginning of the unknown. Because we, we might guess that we kind of blink out of existence after we buy, but we don't know that for sure. So as the philosopher uh, Epicurus wrote, what men fear is not the fact that death is annihilation, but that it is not. And finally, death means the destruction of our bodies. We love our bodies. <laughs> we would like them to continue existing. They are not just somewhat unreliable transportation systems for our minds. They are intrinsic parts of what makes us us. Our bodies uh, enable us not just to exist, but to live to run and jump and hug and kiss and work and write and read. And our bodies unite us in our common humanity because we all have one of vaguely the same type. But they also make us individuals. The fact is that human bodies are so diverse, it's what makes us unique 
from each other, individuals. And it's what we love about each other. We love the differences that we see. So despite the Lion King, we can't seem to shake the feeling that death is unnatural, that it's an intruder, that it is unwelcome. It doesn't belong here. It's not a friend to embrace. It's an enemy to fight. And fight it we do. With medicine and anti-aging treatments and exercise, healthy eating, everything we can do to stave off the inevitable. But it's relentless. Death keeps coming. It keeps coming. And it comes for all of us eventually. And yet, today is Easter Sunday. A day when across the world, billions of people unite together to celebrate this belief that the resurrection of Jesus means that a power has risen that is stronger than the grave and that there is a possibility that the enemy of death has been defeated. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to some friends in a city called Corinth. And like us, they were afraid of death. And they heard about the resurrection of Jesus, but they couldn't quite believe it. It seemed far-fetched, seemed difficult to comprehend. And so they found that they just couldn't believe that this was true, that death had been defeated. So Paul writes to them, and to us today, to give an extraordinary vision for what the resurrection means and specifically what the resurrection bodies would be like. So let's go straight to verses 42 to 44 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, so, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead? The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If you've ever uh, seen a far side comic, then you've probably got the image in your mind of uh, departed saints floating around on clouds with halos above their heads, hanging out at the pearly gates, making wisecracks. This image of uh, the post-death afterlife being kind of ethereal and kind of ghost-like around clouds and harps, it's, it's embedded in the Western consciousness, isn't it? It's, this, it's the image that most people have of heaven. And uh, it's wrong. <laughs> I hate to say it. It's wrong. But people have read these verses that I've just read out, and they've uh, being confused about what two words mean. And so they've got this picture of heaven. And the words are natural and spiritual. People have thought that natural and spiritual is like the difference between people, flesh and blood, and ghosts or spirits. The idea that when alive we have natural bodies made of flesh and then after that we become spirit beings. But that's not what Paul means when he, when he talks about these two words. He's not talking about what the bodies are made of. He's talking about what they are powered by. Not what they're made of, what they are powered by. 
To give you an illustration, um, this is one by N.T. Wright, which is, I think, really helpful. Uh, imagine tomorrow uh, an automobile company uh, comes out with an announcement that they've designed a car that runs on a new type of fuel. And this fuel is the, the dream of every car maker and probably the dream of the planet as well in that it is completely sustainable. In other words, this car will run forever. It could drive, you know, circumnavigate the world. It would just keep on going forever and ever and ever. Now, if we took this brand new, amazing, incredible car and compared it to a different car, what would we say? Well, there's still cars, right? Still got engines, still got wheels, still got a chassis, a body. The difference between the two cars is not that they're not cars. The difference is the fuel. The difference is what it runs on. So Paul is saying the biggest difference between our bodies now and the ones that God promises to give us is the kind of life that powers them. In this world, they will be powered naturally. They will be powered by the life force that every human being has, and every living being has. They run on natural processes. But our new bodies will be spiritual because they run on God's life-giving spirit. His own spirit will power these new bodies, and because it's his spirit, they will last forever. They will run forever. Almost as if this, the new amazing car with the fuel didn't just let it run forever, but also somehow could uh, keep the car maintained, the body in perfect immaculate condition, the engine perfectly immaculately maintained forever and ever and ever. That's what Paul is talking about when he talks about spiritual bodies. They will be maintained forever because they run on God's life-giving spirit. For Paul, because our bodies today are natural, they have three fatal flaws. They are perishable. They fall apart. They wear down. They get old. They have a limited shelf life. They are dishonorable. The things we have used our bodies for make us ashamed. We've lusted with our eyes. We've gossiped with our mouths. We've listened to lies with our ears. We've harmed others with our hands. And they are weak. They are limited in what they can do. They can so easily get hurt and get sick. And the scars on our bodies and the medicine in our cabinets are constant reminders of just how frail we really are. The naturalness of our body is something that we deal with every day. Uh, at the end of last year, um, the missional community I'm part of, a kind of small group of people, uh, met together and we reflected on the year that had passed. And one of our reflections was just how much sickness had been a constant story for us over the year. We'd all been affected by severe illness, both physical and mental, either by us personally ourselves or by people that we knew and loved who were close to us. And so as we reflected, we realized that fighting against the enemy of death is exhausting. It's like running from a pursuer who never gives up, like fighting a tireless opponent who has the upper ground. The naturalness of our bodies means that as we chase, are we chased from death, we grow tired, we are perishable, we are dishonored, 
we are weak. How wonderful then to hear the news that the pursuer has been wrestled to the ground and the enemy has been defeated. Because Paul tells us that these fatal flaws will one day be removed from us forever. That God will create for us new bodies imbued with his own life force, spiritual bodies that run on God's life-giving power. And instead of perishable, they will be imperishable. They will last forever, never grow old, never decay. And instead of dishonored, they will be glorified. Our bodies will only ever be used for what is good and what is pure and what is true and holy. Sin will be inconceivable to us. There will be nothing to ever, ever be ashamed of again. And instead of weakness, they will be powerful. We will run and not grow weary. We will work and not be frustrated. We will not be weighed down any longer by the physical limitations of these mortal shells that we inhabit now. Gone will be limitations only now for endless possibilities forever and ever. We cannot hope to defeat death. We cannot outrun it. It will catch us. But there is one who is more powerful than death, and he has defeated it for us. The one who transforms tiny seeds into mighty oaks, the one who crafted the bodies of people and animals, who spun together the forms of planets, moons, stars, galaxies, nebulas. That God, the creator, will create for us new bodies and they will be beyond glorious. Four years ago, um, Jackie and I decided that we needed a new car. I'm going to use two car illustrations in one sermon. This has never been seen before. Uh, but we, we needed a new car, and there were certain features that we really wanted. A certain size, certain boot space, legroom, etc., etc. Uh, and so we went down to a dealership to check a model out. Now, new cars are a pretty big purchase, and so we really wanted to make sure that the car we bought would be the one that fits the bill, right? And so, you know, we sat in all the seats, measured the boot space, you know, looked at the legroom, played the entertainment system, and of course took it for a test drive, right? Put it through its paces, into a residential street, on the highway, checked out the grunt, all that sort of thing. So when we decided to order that particular car, we knew what we were getting. It wasn't the same car, it wouldn't be the same car as a showroom model that we test drove, no, but we knew the, the dealer had promised us that it would be the same car, the same model, the same make. But it would be different, it would be a different colour, have a few different um, added features that we particularly wanted. The awesome news that Paul gave to the Corinthians and that we get as well through what he wrote is that God doesn't leave us hurting our brains trying to imagine what these new, unperishable bodies would look like. Because he gives us a test run. <laughs> he gives us a model, a prototype, something, a resurrection body that we can see and imagine. A real physical demonstration of an imperishable, powerful and glorious body. This is the body of Jesus. 
The gospel tells us that after his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples. Uh, he had much to teach them in that time, and, but amongst it was to show them what awaited them. That was one of the primary reasons that he stuck around. He wanted them to see what he was like. His resurrection body, they would see, has, had much in common with the old. They recognized Jesus. They saw him as a friend and master. They knew who he was. The scars in his hands, his feet and his sides remained a souvenir of the old life. He sat and drank and ate with them, still enjoying good food and good fellowship. So they could see clearly, this was no ghost, this was no ethereal spirit floating around. This was flesh and blood. This is the Jesus they knew. And yet, it was also a Jesus who was very different. He was recognizable, yes, but not immediately. Sometimes it took a while. And he no longer seemed to have the same physical limitations. He appeared at will behind locked doors and walls. And his nature was different. It was transformed. It was glorious. What the disciples made of it at that time, I don't know. But later on, they'd figured it out. They figured out what this meant. Paul writes earlier in um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, he writes, uh, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What Paul realized was that Jesus is the first fruits of a new harvest. He is the first to rise permanently from the deep sleep of death, and he is the first to be transformed by God's power. And because he is the first, he will not be the last. Jesus is not just the prototype of a resurrection body, though he certainly is that. He's also the beginning of a new pattern that we are being drawn into as Christians. Look at verses 47 to 49. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are also those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Paul's saying that we are all born into the family of the first man, Adam. We share in the physical and spiritual decay that resulted from he and Eve's sin. And we are born stuck in an endless pattern of sin and suffering and death over and over and over again. But all that changes with the second man, Jesus. One who did not share in the taint of sin, one over whom death could not have the final say. And so Good Friday tells us of how this new pattern begins. Jesus' body perished under whips, stuck with nails, pierced with a spear, and his body was dishonored with curses and spitting, mocking and crucifixion, such a shameful death. And his body was weak, gasping for breath, crying with pain. And yet on the third day, today, Easter Sunday, Jesus shook off death and walked out of the tomb. And because of that, there is hope. Just as Adam is the, the forefather, the ancestor of the natural human race, Jesus is the new ancestor, the new forefather 
of a new spiritual people. To belong to Jesus' new family is to inherit his resurrection characteristics, to be unstuck from the old pattern of decay, to no longer need to fear death. Jesus is the prototype and pattern of what is to come. In Jesus, God extends an offer to all to come and be part of his resurrection people, to have faith that what God has begun with Jesus, he will finish with us. And on that day, as Paul says, the old saying will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. But what about this day? That all seems very far off. We do not know the hour or the day when Jesus might return to give us these new bodies. So does this really change anything now, today? Well, I believe that it actually changes everything. It changes everything. The year before my nan died was a bitter year for my family. Uh, As a family, we watched her mind succumb before her body. And anyone who has seen dementia take its grip knows just how painful it is for the sufferer and also for those who watch the suffering. And I saw my dad break down in tears when her mind misted over to the point that she thought that her own son was scheming with the medical staff to kill her. And it was such a grace that actually she recovered somewhat for a while, but eventually her body gave out and she died. And she was in her 90s, and so many would say that she had a good innings, done well. But that did nothing to stem the tide of my family's tears as we said goodbye. And I got to pray at her funeral and I could barely get through to the end. I was choked with tears. In her last months, my nan professed faith in Christ and so as a family we have this hope of resurrection for her. And so I ask myself, were my tears from lack of faith? Was our grief because we didn't believe enough about the resurrection? Shouldn't we have been all smiles knowing that she's in a better place? So should Christians walk around denying the pain of death? As our, as our bodies decay, should we just kind of shrug our shoulders and move on? Should the ravages of mental illness not really affect us? Should we put on a stiff upper lip and clap along to some praise songs? Is that, is that right? Is that what we should do? After all, Paul writes, hear for us words of victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? What does it mean to live believing that Jesus has defeated death, that he has removed its sting and broken its power? What does it mean for us today? Well, again, the pattern of Jesus' life helps us. Do you remember John 11? The story of Jesus and his friend Lazarus. Lazarus dies an untimely death and Jesus comes to the the front of the tomb. And he knows full well what is going to happen. With a word from Jesus, Lazarus will rise and walk out. But before that, what does Jesus do? He weeps. He breaks down in spasms of gut-wrenching grief. Why? 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 He weeps because death is here 
and it shouldn't be. He weeps because it is the enemy of the people who created. He weeps because it has exacted such a heavy toll on his beloved children. Jesus does not accept death. And even though Jesus' resurrection means death will not have the final say, right now its power is still felt in our lives. And so looking at Jesus, we ask, should we just go on stoically and just pretend it's not there in complete denial? No. Not at all. Recently, a dear little boy I knew uh, lost the greatest battle of all with cancer. And when I read the news, I was sitting in my study and I wept. Partly with the joy knowing he is with Jesus right now, but partly with grief because he should not have suffered as he did. Friends, we grieve because of death. We do and we should. But what is the difference? The difference is that our grief is mixed with hope. Paul later would write in 1 Thessalonians, We do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. What Paul is saying is that the sting of death is removed. It doesn't mean that we no longer grieve, but it means that we no longer fear. It doesn't mean that we no longer feel sad, but it means that we are no longer anxious. We are no longer despondent. We, are no longer un- we no longer face the unknown. We no longer face the end of love. We no longer have to fear death. Why? Verse 56. Paul says, What is the sting of death? The sting of death is sin. Sin is the dark power that lives in the human heart that causes us to rebel against God. And death is the consequence of sin because it cuts us off from God's life force. From God's life. And while sin is still alive and well, death is something to be feared because something within us suspects that if there is a God and we do meet him in life after death, then there will be an accounting for how we have lived. But if sin is taken out of the equation, then everything changes. Death could still be painful and unwelcome, but its poisonous sting is removed. It becomes a moment when we move through the door to eternity blindfolded, but then we have the blindfold whisked away, opening our eyes to the wonder of what is next. Sin has been taken away. It was paid for on the cross of Good Friday, just as life erupted from the tomb on Easter Sunday. And so, friends, we don't have to wait for the resurrection to, 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 to happen for us to live a resurrection life. It has already begun. It, it begins on the day of your baptism, which we did with Peter on Friday. That is the day that you die to sin and rise with Christ spiritually, your inner self. In other words, while we wait for our new body, we do not need to wait for new hearts. Because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us, teaching us to live with joy and hope and not with fear. And we are compelled then to give our all for the God who gave his all for us. 
So now as the people of Easter Sunday, we can fully appreciate the words of Paul. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Feel grief, but do not lose hope. Feel pain, but do not lose joy. Feel loss, but do not give up. Your mind and your body may fail you, but Christ will not. And when you awake on the other side of eternity, you will be more you than you have ever been. And so Paul writes, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The band come up, uh, let's pray. Father, what a wonderful promise to know for sure that because Christ has raised, so also will we. So Christ has been clothed in a new resurrection body, so also will we. So Christ now reigns in glory, so also one day will we. Father, it seems a long way off, and yet it could be in a moment. But help us now, Father, to live every day as resurrection people. People who do not deny the, the hardships of this life, the, the weakness of our bodies, there's dishonor, their perishability, and yet live with such hope, such joy, and such confidence that a world that is so afraid of death might wake up, open their eyes, and see the good news that we are promised. Father, this is wonderful. This Easter Sunday, may these great truths flow deeply down to our hearts and transform all that we are and all that we will be. Amen.